Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tightknit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. I'm Sam Fragoso. This is Talk Easy. I hope you're staying safe and healthy over the holidays. I know it's a strange one. Thank you for being here. This is a very special day for us on the show. And I know I say it's a special day for us on the show all the time, but really stick with us because um, this is something we've been working towards for about four or five months now. As you may remember, over the summer, I had the privilege of sitting with Fran Lebowitz. It turned out to be an immensely popular conversation, I think because it was Fran being Fran for 75 minutes. Of course, she is the author of books like Metropolitan Life and Social Studies. She's also a renowned public speaker, performing across the country in auditoriums and lecture halls. That was until the pandemic. In the absence of modern technology, she doesn't have a cell phone, she doesn't have a computer, there were no virtual events for Fran. There was no Zooming going on. When we spoke over the summer, she called from her landline. After we finished taping, I started to ask her about how she may be able to listen to this episode. You know, because she doesn't have a phone, a computer, the internet. There was silence on the other line. Did I offend her with that question? Was it so outrageous that she may want to hear how the conversation turned out? As you can tell, I'm reliving the anxiety I felt in the moment. But as the silence grew deafening, I came up with an idea. I have maybe one or two of those every year. So I said to her, well, what if we printed a vinyl record of the podcast and have it sent to you in New York? She started talking. She liked this idea. She was entertained by the notion of a vinyl record before admitting to me that she does, in fact, not own a record player. I must say, I was a little heartbroken, but by the time she made this admission, I had fallen in love with the idea. 
And so here we are. A vinyl record has actually been made. It exists in the flesh. A physical representation of this show. I'm not sure if a podcast has been pressed on vinyl before. We may be entering some uncharted territory, but really, who better to do that with than the inimitable Fran Leibowitz? What you're about to hear is side A of the vinyl record. It's Fran on the pandemic, some technological mishaps, writer's block, race in America, and her dear friend, the late, great Toni Morrison. I really hope you enjoy it. It is a labor of love from everyone on this podcast. To learn more about how and where to buy this record, visit talkeasypod.com slash shop. And now, here is some of that phone call with Fran Leibowitz. Hello? Hello? Hi, this is, this is Sam. Hi, this is Fran. How are you doing? Uh, compared to whom? <laughs> Let's start with you. I'm doing the same as everyone else is doing. I'm guessing. I don't know everyone else, but I seem to know most. I heard a lot of people are making phone calls to you that previously said they would never make phone calls to you. Is that still true? Well, since they're making phone calls, I mean, I mean, I have numerous friends who for years, you know, ever since uh, texting, they said, I hate to talk on the phone. I don't talk on the phone anymore. But since the um, virus, um, not only do they seem to like to talk on the phone, I can't get them off the phone. And I like to talk on the phone. Uh, that's my only means of communication. But I've always liked to talk on the phone because I like to talk. Um, but uh, yes, there's been a tremendous conversion. So you don't have a cell phone. You don't have the internet. You don't have all the reasonable things people use to excuse themselves from doing the work they're supposed to do. Was that a choice? Let me assure you, there, there's no one better at putting things off than I am. I don't need any modern devices to do that. Um, it wasn't a choice. I mean, not having all these things wasn't really a choice. It looks like a choice now. In fact, it looks like an ideology, um, but it is not. It was just that when they invented computers, I mean, the sort of computer you had in your house, they were called word processors. Um, this is, you know, a century ago. A friend of mine who was a screenwriter got one and she was raving about it. She said, you have to come to my apartment and look at this thing. So I went and I looked at it and it seemed to me to be just a very fast typewriter, which is kind of what it was then. I didn't even have a typewriter. I never had a typewriter. I don't know how to type. So I thought, I don't need this. I don't know how to type. As you know, this machine progressed. Um, I didn't realize, of course, that the entire world would go into this machine, but I still don't know how to type. And so uh, that's my primary reason for not having these things. Now, it's difficult for other people. It's not difficult for me. I don't care. People complain to me all the time. You don't have a cell phone. I can't reach you. You know, you're on the plane. I can't reach you. That's okay with me. I don't feel I have to be available to people all the time. But this is one of the few upsides of being old. I don't have to have it. Would you consider yourself old? I don't really think of myself in that way, you know, but, you know, at a certain age, if you're a woman, um, people start calling you ma'am. Even people who have horrible manners in other ways, they reach for this old fashioned word and use it to you. Do you think there is uh, more of an obsession with age now than there was when you were in your 20s? You know, a lot of this concentration on age is just marketing. Everyone has become kind of suffused with things that really 
are the province of people trying to sell you stuff. Naming generations, people call people my age baby boomers, then they call them boomers. That used to mean you were young, by the way. You see, this is what happens. I mean, you know, that when they started calling us that, we were kids. I always get mixed up now. There's so many different categories of people. For a while, millennials were the youngest people. Now, I believe there are two generations after them. But these are marketing generations. These aren't real generations. A human generation is like 20 years. A cultural generation used to be like 10 years. You know, now it's like 10 minutes. You write with a with a big pen, right? A big pen or any kind of ballpoint pen. And you once said, I'm such a slow writer, I have no need for anything as fast as a word processor. I write so slowly that I could write in my own blood without hurting myself. That's a fact. My problem isn't that I write slowly, it's that I write at all. So when I do write, um, I do write very slowly, but I don't write, I don't do drafts. So that when I finish a sentence, that sentence is finished. So it could take quite a long time to write that sentence. Most writers, you know, they uh, write, you know, in drafts over and over again. Most writers also, at least most writers that I've ever known, um, seem to have the problem of writing too much. You know, they're always saying, I have to get it, you know, I have to cut it down. I have to make it shorter. This is not my problem. And that's nothing to do with writing with a pen, by the way. I mean, if I had, uh, you know, an iPhone or whatever people write on now, an iPad, a computer, I would be also write very slow. I mean, these uh, machines um, change writing, not just the act of writing, but for instance, I don't, you know, this is not a statistic. This is my observation. Books, novels are much longer than they used to be. Just the average novel, the average book is much longer. And I think that is because when I was young, people typed, not me, but when you typed on a typewriter and you made a mistake or you changed it, you had to type it over. Now they just press something and it goes away. It, and um, so they can keep writing. Also, it, you don't really see how long it is. Um, they don't care how long it is, apparently. It also looks perfect. You know, when you delete something, it disappears. Then people used to cross stuff out and white stuff out. Um, it looked very worked on. And now it doesn't. So it looks perfect. When I write, I used to write by hand, then I would read it to someone who typed it. When I got to type pages, I couldn't believe how much better the writing was. Mm. Now, it looks perfect right away. But I have news for them. It may look perfect, but it is not done. Don't you feel that there are too many writers right now? Yes, way too many. There are way too many writers. There are too many artists of every sort. It's not a moral judgment. It's just that, that one of the things required to participate in these forums is talent. And there's just never been that many talented people. There may always have been more talented people than you were aware of because there were so uh, many strictures against kind of getting in. Um, and that is definitely a good thing, not a bad thing, because there were people that were kept out having nothing to do with talent. But, you know, you're, there's no era, you know, where there were like a million great writers. There are certainly times where there are like kind of pockets of terrific writers. There was, you know... the an awful lot of great painters in Renaissance Italy. That happens. Yes, of course. There's also their writing schools now. When I was young, there was the University of Iowa Writers Workshop. As far as I was aware, that was it. And it's a silly thing, a writing school. 
know, I just think it's a ridiculous thing. You can, this is a thing you can't teach. This is not possible to teach this. These schools, uh, the teachers are people who are writers because, of course, it's almost impossible to make a living as a writer. So they teach at these schools. I have a lot of friends who teach at these schools. Um, the kids go to these schools. They meet these teachers who are already published writers, and they help them get published. But that isn't the same thing as learning to be a writer. Do you feel like you had an ability to write inherently? Yes. Just the same way I could tell you that I do not have an ability to sing. Also, an ability that's inherent. I am a terrible singer, um, even though I can sing, by which I mean I can sing, but it is horrible. If I went to singing school, it would still be horrible. The only difference is perhaps they would point out why it was horrible. But I couldn't become a great singer because I don't have the ability. I have a friend, my best friend, who has perfect pitch. And you can be in a restaurant with her. Well, when you used to be in restaurants with people. And it would be really noisy. And there was music that you could hardly hear. And all of a sudden, she would wince. And, you, and I would say, what's wrong? She would, can't you hear he's flat? No, I can't. Do you have a similar experience when reading a book where the writing is weak? You should be a diplomat. <laughs> weak? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I do. I absolutely do. I don't want to brag. But I would say I'm one of the greatest readers in the country. I'm a great reader. I mean, I notice every single thing in a sentence. And there are certain things I don't notice when reading because I don't care about them. I don't care that much about stories. So that if I'm reading a novel, I'm not like noticing. People say, well, didn't you think the story didn't really hold together? I don't really care. Maybe it didn't hold together. I don't know. But first, you'd have to be wanting it to hold together to begin with. But sentences I notice. And that is something that I'm very interested in, that, and that's something that I love, you know, I think, which is why I'm so good at it. I'm a very good editor, you know, which I edit as I'm reading. Sometimes if I'm in a particularly horrible mood, which has been like the last six months, reading alone in my apartment, I will yell at the book. I started this conversation by asking you, how are you doing? And you should have just come out and said, I'm in a horrible mood. Well, because a mood is a transient thing, you know, I mean, everyone's in a horrible mood. I mean, I, now when people ask you how you are, you're supposed to say, I'm fine, meaning I did not die of this virus and I was not killed by a cop. So, yes, a lot of people I know say, well, I'm better off than most people. But that has always been true, by the way. Mm. Most of the people I know have always been better off than most people. The simplicity in which you're, you're coming at this, um, it reminds me of that interview you gave in Vanity Fair in 1997. You wrote something that I want to quote here. What is actually served by multiculturalism and all things attendant to it is the power of white people. And this, despite any and all such academic quibbling, is primarily accomplished by the continuing oppression of blacks. Because even though the conversation now includes all these other elements, the truth is that the farther you are from being black, the more likely you are to assimilate, to be more like white. The more you are like white, the less trouble you have. Because the more you are like white, the less trouble you are. I mean, clearly I was right. Why people are now paying attention to it, you know, there are numerous reasons why people are paying attention to it now. I have read and seen numerous older uh, black people, politicians, writers, cultural figures saying, this seems different to me than other times it happened. And it does, you know, I hope that they're right. Um, it does seem different, but, you know, partially that's because 
the time is different. You know, the era is different. But if you're asking me, does this seem solved to me? It does not seem solved to me. I mean, the problem with racism is that it is a fantasy. That's the problem with it. It's easier to fix something real than something that is a fantasy. Because first you have to convince people this is a complete fantasy. I mean, I mean, there's no such thing as differences between people by skin color. It's impossible to imagine people don't know this. It would be as if you divided up the world by shoe size. You know, if you said, well, all people who have a shoe size over nine are superior to all people who have a shoe. And then the entire world was constructed around this. And generations of people, millions of people, led torturous existence because of it. That's how stupid it is. But also because people compare things that are not comparable. So people compare race to religion. They compare religion to gender. They and these things are not comparable. And I don't think anyone is served by these false comparisons. What people call like the problem of race is like a made-up problem. I mean, it's a problem. I'm not saying it's not a problem. But I mean, the germ of it is this fantasy. You know, I don't know when people are going to give this up. I mean, it, one thing that is very different is the attitude toward race is immensely different by age. That is true. That is something I've noticed for a long time. And that is a hopeful sign. The one question that I haven't seen batted around is something you wrote in that piece where you said, the way to approach it, I think, is not to ask, what would it be like to be black, but to seriously consider what it is like to be white. I mean, this is something white people don't think about. That, and this is, you know, after I just said, you can't compare things, I'm going to compare this. This is why men don't understand the Me Too movement. They understand it. Even the best men, even my male friends, my straight male friends are the most carefully curated group of straight men on the planet Earth. Even these men don't understand it. So they, they can't imagine what it's like to be a woman. They can't imagine it. And they don't think about what it's like to be a man. Because they have been men their whole lives. Even baby boys are treated like men. Baby boys are treated differently than baby girls. So they can't understand it. And white people never think about this. Here is something I learned, not a skill, but the last big thing I learned that really was a revelation to me. When Toni Morrison won the Nobel Prize, which I don't remember what year it was, it was in the 90s, she took a bunch of friends with her to Stockholm. I was one of these people. So we were in Stockholm for like a week. And one night, the president, Princeton, who at that time was a man named Harold Shapiro, gave a dinner for Tony in a restaurant. And there were about 20 of us at this dinner. And Harold Shapiro was sitting at one end of the table. Tony was sitting next to him. At the opposite end of the table, I was sitting with a bunch of other people that Tony brought. One of the people was Aaron McDonald, who was my editor and was Tony's editor. Um, one was Skip Gates. One was Cornell West. I don't remember who the other people were. But during the conversation, I said, well, if I were black and everybody at my end of the table started laughing so hard, they were like choking with laughter. I'm used to people laughing at what I say, but I usually know why. I had zero idea. So when people had recovered enough to respond to me, I said, what's so funny? 
And this was such raucous laughter that the other end of the table, Tony said, what's so funny? And Errol said, Fran just said, if I were black, and Tony fell on the floor. If I were black, I'd do this, whatever it was. So I said, what's so funny? And one of these guys, I remember who it was, said, if you were black and you talked the way you talk, you would have been in jail since you were 14. Not only did I never say that again, I never thought it again. I never thought if I were black or if I was a man or if I was French or because there's no such thing. Because you would be a different person, <laughs> a completely different person. Of course, the way I talk, you cannot talk if you're black. So I wouldn't have. You know, I yell at cops in the street. I've done it my whole life, not when I was a teenager, when I was afraid of cops still. But I've done it my whole life. I yell at cops in the street when they're not doing what they're supposed to do. I don't mean in some heroic way when they're choking someone to death, you know. But I mean when they're not letting people walk through some street or something. I will just yell at them and walk right past. And numerous times in my life when I've been doing this, young black guys in the street will say to me, are you crazy talking to a cop like that? And I always say, no, I'm not crazy. I'm white. Cop's not going to do anything to me. And I know that. I know that I can yell at a cop. They won't respond. You know, they'll ignore you, but they're not going to arrest you. They're not going to beat you up. They're not going to kill you. And I've always known that. That's a very different way to be in the world than saying, don't talk to a cop like that. You're going to get killed. Why do you think it is so difficult for people to reframe their thinking? on something like privilege. Part of it is that most people, and not just white people, most people don't know a lot of people that are not like them. This is extremely limiting, no matter what you're like. It's very hard for people, no matter how smart they are, to imagine not being another person, but seeing that there are other, that other people respond to you differently. People now, especially because everyone's giving you their opinion every minute, people are always telling you, I think this, I think that. And it's not even true what they're saying, by which I mean, they're not telling you what they think. They're telling you what they feel. Most people don't think anything. Most people don't think. So we have emotions masquerading as thoughts. And that in itself is a dangerous thing. For many years, you would have these phone calls with Toni Morrison and you would ask her, how should I think about this? Not, how should I feel about this? Because you knew how you felt. Now that she's gone and it's been almost a year, how have you managed to figure out how you think about things without her? When this virus happened, I didn't know how to think about it. And that was the thing that I most wanted to ask her. And this is because... This virus is the first thing that has happened in my adult life that didn't remind me of something else. And of course, instantly people, you know, look for comparisons. And I read and heard a million people say this is like the beginning of AIDS, which it is absolutely not. It's just not a correct uh, analogy at all. This is not like AIDS. First of all, at the beginning of AIDS, no one paid attention to it. Everyone's paying attention to this. Although at the beginning of AIDS, they didn't know how uh, you uh, caught it. But, you know, once they said it was sex, you may, because maybe you have sex with 100 different people a week, you may not know who you got it from, but you at least knew you had sex. This, you don't know. Am I getting into an elevator where someone just sneezed? We don't know this. 
we have no way of knowing this. But I have no way of thinking about this. Tony, um, also, although she was much older than I am, um, also never lived through anything like this. But Tony was wise. So Tony, first of all, would not give you a bunch of ridiculous analogies. And then maybe from talking to her, she might already know a way to think about it because people feel, or at least I did, and to, to a large sense, they'll do like you're drowning in molasses. You know, like how can you think about this? Not the details of it, but in a, in a larger way. And, and uh, there's no way that, you know, I'm going to become Tony to myself. There just isn't. I have never known anyone else uh, wise. I've known a lot of smart people, but I've only known one, one wise person in my whole life. Tony had an unusual... In my experience, you know, unique breadth of humanity. When I was a kid, my mother used to say to me all the time, can't you be the bigger person? Can't you be the bigger person? And, you know, it turns out, no, I can't. I'm the smaller person. <laughs> by, by nature, I'm the smaller person. What my mother really meant was, can't you forgive people? Can't you, you know? But Tony was the bigger person. Tony was, in fact, the biggest person that I've ever known. She would think about it not just cognitively is, you know, her thinking was informed also by this level of humanity she had, which was not just some sort of forgiving nature, you know, which she did have much more than me, but everyone does. It was an ability to see other people who could be vastly different from you whole. And you see that in her books, by the way, you don't have to know her to know this, you know, I mean, in her writing, you see this, she sees every side of a person. She had like the most profound empathy I've ever encountered. Even if she disliked someone, eventually she would find some aspect of the, not that she liked, but some reason for it, which is a kind of forgiveness, which I don't have at all. I don't care why you're like that, by the way. You're like this, I don't care why. I mean, I've always felt that a book is the closest thing to a human being that there is other than human being. I know most people think it's a puppy, but they're wrong. So Tony's books are filled with actual people. That's wisdom. Why don't you believe in forgiveness? It's not that I don't believe in it. It's that I don't, I don't understand what you're talking about. Do you mean you forget about it? No, it means that you acknowledge it and you move on. I think it's the moving on part that is not accessible to me. It's a very lofty idea, by the way. And it's so interesting to me how many people talk about forgiveness who not only are not very lofty, but they are people that I would describe as absolutely base. But I don't know. It's just not in my nature uh, to forgive or to forget. So you're walking around harboring all these ill will feelings towards people you half care about? That seems so exhausting. It's not. It just comes naturally. I don't have to even think about it. Oh, to you it comes naturally? Yeah. I don't even have to think about it. It's not a burden. It really isn't a burden. I don't think about it unless, you know, it comes up. You know, it's not a burden. I feel burdened for you. Well, you, you must be uh, maybe more sensitive than I am. Oh, I mean, I, I don't even think that's a contest. I think I win that in a landslide. I think holding grudges is a kind of, like, modern equivalent of having standards. <laughs> And there it is. If you'd like to hear the rest of this conversation with Fran Leibowitz, our vinyl record is now available for purchase. To do so, visit www.talkeasypod.com shop. 
That's talkeasypod.com slash shop. Of course, to make a vinyl record is a massive undertaking made possible because of many different people. Nick Townsend of Townsend Mastering cut the lacquer, RTI pressed the record, and all of this would not be possible without the team at Grooved. Michael Grieg Thomas, Rachel Edelstein, and Mark Calibro. Grooved is a vinyl record manufacturing company focused on independent artists across North America. And I have to say, this is not an ad, by the way, but from experience, if you're looking for a record pressing of your music, you should consider Grooved. They are the kind of people doing this work for the right reasons. They go the extra mile at every turn. So to learn more about them, be sure to visit www.grooved.co. That's Grooved, G-R-O-O-V-E-D dot co. As always, our executive producer is Janixa Bravo, illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our assistant editors are David Harding, Joshua Siegel, Kevin Kaur, and Rena Zhang. Music by Dylan Peck. Marketing by Patrice Lee. Our interns are Juliana Rector, Grace Perkins, and Ian Simmons. Graphics for the show and this vinyl record are by Derek Gabrzak and Ethan Seneca. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I really hope you enjoy the record. It is, like every episode, a labor of love. We'll be back next Sunday with a very special collaboration with the AIDS Memorial. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.